Merry Christmas, and welcome to The Forgotten Man of Christmas, featuring Dr. Ray Pritchard. Ray is a frequent co-host of Today's Issues and president of Keep Believing Ministries. And now, here's Ray. I don't know anyone who doesn't like Christmas. I know people who don't like pizza or chocolate. I know a few people who don't like dogs. But I don't know anyone who doesn't like Christmas. I mean, what's not to like? There are trees and gifts and sleigh rides and carols and eggnog and chestnuts roasting by an open fire. There are cantatas and candy canes and gifts galore. Long lost cousins and uncles and aunts mysteriously show up at your door. There are nights so cold that when you go outside, the cold takes your breath away. Along with many others, I confess that Christmas is my favorite time of the year. I think I inherited that from my mom, who loved this season. She loved to bake Christmas cookies with red and green sprinkles. She decorated our house from stem to stern, and she loved to invite a hundred or so of our closest friends over for a very lively Christmas party each year. I still remember how she would make mountains of meatballs, which she marinated in a mixture of grape jelly and chili sauce. She served them in a fondue pot and let us eat them with toothpicks. She also made the best chocolate fudge in the history of the world. Christmas at our house started right after Thanksgiving when mom would go to the closet and pull out a big stack of 33 RPM long play high fidelity records that gathered dust for 11 months out of the year. For a few, all too brief days, we would listen to the Christmas music of Henry Mancini, the Ray Conniff singers, Bing Crosby, the Robert Shaw Chorale, and something called the Norman Luboff Choir. We've gotten a little bit of an early start at our house this year. Just before Thanksgiving, Knox and Violet, two of our grandchildren, came over to help put up the Christmas decorations. Knox helped me dig out the boxes with decorations. Then he and Violet helped Marlene put the ornaments on the tree. Forty years ago, Marlene started making Christmas stockings for each of our children, their spouses, and then one at a time for each of our 10 grandchildren. That means this year we have 18 stockings, which is too many for the mantle. So this year we have an upper row of stockings for the adults and a lower row for the grandchildren. After we finished decorating, we celebrated with chocolate fondue, which was messy, but fun. We long ago threw out all our records and our record player. Now we get all our music from Spotify, which means we can still listen to the Robert Shaw Chorale sing on the finest Christmas album I know, The Many Moods of Christmas. Best of all, there is the story of the first Christmas, that old story we heard before we could even walk or talk. There is the ancient story of Mary and Joseph, the manger, and something called Great with Child. There are angels and shepherds and strange creatures, strange people. They call them wise men who rode a long, long way to see the baby Jesus. The story even has a villain, 
a bad man named Herod who hated Jesus and wanted to put him to death. And we all know how the story begins. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Now, that leads me to ask this question. If you were given the opportunity to meet any person in the Christmas story, who would you choose? I mean, aside from Jesus himself. So who would you choose? I've been thinking about that this week, and it's not easy to decide. There are so many fascinating people. Herod, that wicked old toad squatting on the throne of Israel, insanely jealous, lest a baby steal his glory. The Magi, the wise men from the East. Who were they? Where did they come from? Were they astrologers? How did they know about the star? And then the innkeeper, if indeed there was an innkeeper, well, I can see him in my mind's eye. A good man, harried, frustrated to turn away business. Did he ever discover who he turned away? The shepherds. Now, in those days, that was not an honored profession in Israel, notwithstanding the fact that Abraham and David were both shepherds. In those days, in the first century, the shepherds were probably not the old men we have seen in the paintings. They were probably young men who were tending the flocks in the fields outside Bethlehem. There are so many others. Anna the prophetess, Simeon, who took the baby Jesus in his arms and blessed his parents. And then there is Mary. Luke wrote his story about her. Wouldn't you like to meet the mother of Jesus? I would, but there's someone else I'd like to meet even more. He is the forgotten man of Christmas. Matthew wrote his story about him. His name is Joseph. He is the husband of Mary. He's the person from the first Christmas story I would most like to meet. Now, when I call Joseph the forgotten man of Christmas, that's not an exaggeration. Not much is said about him in the Bible. Not many sermons are preached about him. As a matter of fact, there's just not much written about Joseph at all. So I picked up a hymnal and flipped through it to see how many times his name is mentioned. This is what I discovered. In that particular hymnal, Mary is mentioned by name seven times. Joseph is never mentioned, not even once. Now, maybe you remember that in the great Christmas carol, Angels We Have Heard on High, there is a verse that mentions him. See within a manger laid, Jesus, Lord of heaven and earth, Mary, Joseph, lend your aid, sing with us Messiah's birth. Unfortunately, the hymnal I checked omits that verse. So let me briefly list for you the things we know about Joseph. His father was Jacob. His family hometown was Bethlehem in Judea, but he lived in Nazareth in Galilee. That meant Joseph and Mary had to travel about 80 or 90 miles in the dead of winter in order to register for the census. He is from the royal line of David. The genealogy in Matthew 1 makes that clear. 
He was a carpenter by trade. He was a poor man. We know that because when he and Mary presented Jesus in the temple, they brought a turtle dove to sacrifice. Jews only did that when they couldn't afford a lamb. He was a religious man, a devout keeper of the law, a fact we will observe more closely in just a moment. How old was Joseph? Well, we don't know the answer for sure, but most writers agree he was a young man, and he might have been an older teenager. If we said 20, 21, 22 years old, we would probably be about right. Now, Matthew tells Joseph's story this way, Matthew 1.18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. What our version calls pledged to be married, the older versions call betrothed. It refers to an ancient Jewish marriage custom. Now, in those days, most marriages were arranged by the parents with or sometimes without the children's approval. The two sets of parents would meet and draw up a formal marriage contract. When the contract was signed, the young man and the young woman were legally pledged or betrothed to each other. Now, this period of betrothal could last up to a year. After that, they were formally married in a public wedding ceremony. That does sound like our practice of engagement, but there were some major differences. In the first place, the pledge was considered as sacred as marriage itself. During that year, the couple, they were called husband and wife, but they didn't live together. If the man died during that year, the woman would be considered a widow, even though the wedding ceremony had never taken place. The only way to break the betrothal was through a legal divorce. In essence, to be pledged to each other was the same thing as being married, except that you could not live together as husband and wife until the wedding ceremony took place. The whole idea was that the one-year waiting period was meant to be a time for testing commitment and faithfulness. Now, this is where the story gets interesting. According to Deuteronomy 22, verses 20 and 21, if a woman was found to be pregnant during the betrothal, that could only mean she had been unfaithful to her husband, in which case the law commanded that she be stoned to death. So, we come back to Matthew 1. Mary turns up pregnant. Joseph only knows one thing for sure. He's not the father. What words describe a man at a time like that? Anger? Confusion, frustration, embarrassment, shame, rage, disappointment. What did he say to her? What did she say to him? Did she tell him about the angel Gabriel? Surely she must have. If she did, can you blame him for not believing her? Did he say to her, Mary, how could you? You were pledged to me. We were going to get married. I was going to build a little house for us in Nazareth. Mary, Mary, how could you do this? Why, Mary, why? 
I kept myself for you. Why couldn't you keep yourself for me? I think Joseph cried harder that day than he had ever cried in his life. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. You're a teenager in love, and suddenly your girlfriend turns up pregnant. You aren't the father, but you don't know who is. So what do you do? Today, if you're a typical American teenager, you give her a few hundred dollars to get an abortion. It's easy. It's quick, it's cheap, and just like that, you can make the problem go away. A half million teenage girls take that option every year. It's the preferred solution for what people call an unwanted pregnancy. Thankfully, Joseph and Mary didn't have that option. Abortion was very rare in ancient Israel, and Planned Parenthood hadn't yet opened up a clinic in Nazareth. Joseph's dilemma was of a different variety. He was an observant Jew, a believing Jew, and under the law of God, he had the right to divorce Mary for unfaithfulness. In fact, the law forbade him to marry her under those circumstances. Here is the greatness of Joseph. He loved her even though he thought she had been unfaithful to him his love covered her shame. This is how Matthew 1.19 puts it. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. That means he wanted to do what was right in the eyes of God and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. That means that although he thought she had been unfaithful, he still didn't want to humiliate her. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. In those days, a man could get a divorce in two ways. First, he could get a public divorce by going before a judge at the gate of the city. Now that would mean the whole town would know about Mary's shame. Second, he could get a private divorce by giving her the papers in the presence of two witnesses. It is entirely to Joseph's credit that he chose to do it privately and thus spare Mary the humiliation of a public divorce. Having made his decision, he didn't do it. He had every legal and moral right to divorce Mary, but he just couldn't do it. As one writer put it, there was a short but tragic struggle between his legal conscience and his love. He hesitated, waited, thought long and hard. Day after day, he pondered the matter. Time was running out. With each passing day, it became more obvious that Mary was pregnant. Late at night, he lay in bed, staring into the blackness, wondering what to do. Then, one night, it happened. He had a dream, and in the dream, God spoke to him. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. To us, this seems strange, but not to Joseph. God often spoke to people through dreams in the Bible. It was one way he used in those ancient days of communicating to his people. It worked.
Joseph needed assurance. He couldn't marry Mary until he was sure it was all right. He had to know the truth. God met him at the point of his need at exactly the right moment. He told Joseph the one thing he most wanted to hear. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. In the days to come, there would be whispers and rumors. Those rumors continued when Jesus started his ministry 30 years later. And now, after 2,000 years, they are still around. You hear them occasionally. Joseph was the real father. A Roman soldier was the real father. Mary had a secret lover. But the rumors are not true. The Apostles' Creed offers us this succinct explanation. Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. But why would God do it that way? Back to what the angel said to Jesus. He's not finished yet. Matthew 1.21, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The angel explains just enough and nothing more. The baby is from the Holy Spirit and thus not of man. Nothing more is said. We are not told precisely how the virgin conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary took place. It remains one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith. After 2,000 years of debate, we know nothing more about it than Joseph did. The angel added a detail about who this baby will be. His name is Jesus, which means Savior. His mission is to save his people from their sins. That's all. It's not a long message, but it is enough. Now, come to the end of Matthew 1. Matthew 1 verses 24 and 25. Those two verses are insufficiently celebrated as great Christmas verses. They reveal Joseph's finest qualities. This is what those verses say. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she had given birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. Every step he takes testifies to his greatness. By marrying her quickly, he broke all Jewish custom, but he protected Mary's reputation. She was pregnant and he wasn't the father, but he married her anyway. By keeping her a virgin until Jesus was born, he protected the miracle of Jesus' conception by the Holy Spirit against slander by unbelievers. By naming the baby, he exercised a father's prerogative and thus officially took him into his family as his own legal son. The only other comment I want to make is that the story is told exactly as a man would tell it. I like Joseph. I wish I could meet him. He strikes me as a very good man. We give more attention to Mary, and rightly so, but Joseph deserves his credit too. He is a model of the man of faith, struggling with his doubts, persuaded to believe what God had said, and ultimately acting 
upon his persuasion. In these days of confusion, Joseph is a wonderful model of what a godly man looks like. He was tough when he could have been weak. He was tender when he could have been harsh. He was thoughtful when he could have been hasty. He was trusting when he could have doubted. He was temperate when he could have indulged himself. I pause to ask this question, men, could we use these same words to describe your life? Are you tough-minded, determined to do what is right, no matter what it costs? Are you tender with your wife and with your children? Are you thoughtful, taking your time to make important decisions, or are you quick to jump to conclusions and quick to say things you later regret? Are you trusting even when you think you could figure out a better way to do things? Are you temperate and considerate of your wife and her special needs? Or do you pressure your wife and your children to perform up to your standard of perfection? There is one other line of proof about the kind of man Joseph was. When Jesus grew up and began his ministry, he chose one word above all others to describe what God is like. He called him Father. Where did Jesus learn about fathers? From Joseph. I speak again to the men. The way your children respond to God depends in large part on the kind of father you are. You teach them something about God every day just by the way you live in front of them. I began by calling Joseph the forgotten man of Christmas and so he is. It's only right that we think about Mary and talk about her more because of her role as the mother of our Lord. But it's good from time to time to remember Joseph and to thank God for his example. We could use more of the Joseph spirit today. The angel said, you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. The very next verse says he will be called Emmanuel which means God with us. Jesus means Savior. Emmanuel means God with us. We need both. We need a Savior, for we are sinners. But the only way God could save us was to leave heaven and to live among us. That's what Christmas is all about. If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator if our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us a banker. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness, so God sent us a savior. Do you know him? Is he your savior? Christmas is all about the truth that God actually came down to earth in the person of a little baby. It's about the truth that Jesus was born of a virgin named Mary in a village called Bethlehem. It's about the truth that Jesus was fully God and fully man, the God-man. As the familiar carol puts it, see him in the manger laid, Jesus, Lord of heaven and earth, Mary, Joseph, Lend your aid, sing with us our Savior's birth. 
So, may we all lend our aid to sing our Savior's birth this Christmas season. On that note, I wish you a very Merry Christmas. You've been listening to The Forgotten Man of Christmas with Dr. Ray Pritchard, president of Keep Believing Ministries. Learn more at keepbelieving.com. And thank you for listening to this special program on American Family Radio.